Now, just, just to make it clear, we are not advocating the harming of any mimes anywhere. True. We want to be able to do it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Damn It, Jim, the podcast. A fun and fascinating look at the very influential Star Trek, the original series. Once again, I'm your navigator, Dana Smith, and our commodore of mockery is my good friend, Dan Calzaretta. Good evening, Dan. Wow, a commodore. So uh, how much of a jump is it, Dana, from captain to commodore? Is that like one step up or what is it? Yeah, I, I was reading about it today, Dan. Usually commodores are only uh, given that rank during wartime, I think. Oh, so uh, that's that's what I was one of the things I was reading. But uh, there are there have been non-wartime commodores. Okay. Well, sometimes this podcast feels like we're going through a war with some of the episodes <laughs> we've been having to deal with lately, Dana. Yeah. Uh, if I had remembered season three was as bad as, bad as it is, yeah, uh, we would have moved on to uh, what's next for us. Yeah. So yeah, or just stopped. <laughs> we would have just called it quits. <laughs> It's funny. I mean, I I remember some of these shows, but for some reason I've missed a lot of season three, or maybe it's on purpose. I've missed a lot of season three. Well, you may have seen it and then did this whole like, what do they call that in psychology when you know, suppressed memories, right? Where you yeah, just suppressed yeah. it, you know? Yep. That could be. Well, Dana, thank you for the promotion. I do appreciate it. But the downside of a promotion is like, added responsibilities which i do not want so are there added responsibilities here uh yeah oh crap you have to maintain the same kind of humor and mockery that you did uh last week Uh oh okay i'll do my best i'll do my best <laughs> yeah. how, are, how are things going for you dana pretty good yeah it's the end of the month at work and that's always a tough time a lot of stuff going on and uh beatings firings uh <laughs> Just uh, scalding with a red hot poker, mostly. And, you know, so, and my arm gets tired from whipping people and stuff. So. Sure, sure. Yeah. What about you? Anything exciting happening out there in Colorado? Um, nope. Okay. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> maybe we should move into like the listener comments, maybe, or something. Sure, yeah. All right, yeah. let's do it. So, <laughs> so Dan, last week, uh, we discussed the episode wink of an eye and we did get some comments on that on facebook uh lawrence rhodes said the theme of movement at differential speeds originated in hg wells short story called the new accelerator this episode has some problems as most episodes of season number three did steve kazimeric said this episode proves there must have been a way off the bridge other than the turbo lift do you, do you know what that means no yeah, I, I don't, I don't either. But uh, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking it's because the uh, woman appeared on the bridge, but didn't come up through the turbo lift. We've seen that before, right? Yeah. Uh, our good friend Pam McClung says, "I have a memory of being rather intrigued when I first watched this episode, and how they revealed it, so you could couldn't really tell at first, like Kirk and Spock, what was exactly going on. Mm -hmm. I find those kind of episodes more fun." Jim Parcel said Dila was played by Kathy Brown. I thought she was the bee's knees. Was that guy 90 years old? <laughs> 100? Maybe he's 120. So, Dan, I think uh, you have a couple of emails, and by chance you might have a phone message or two. 
Yes, Dana, this was a great week. So we did get a couple of phone calls. First, longtime listener Olivia commented on Plato's stepchildren. She had this to say. I really did appreciate how you mentioned Anne Bancroft and Nancy Sinatra, because I feel like everyone has a misconception that this episode contained the first interracial kiss, and then they forget about those other two instances. I've only seen about half of this episode because I couldn't handle the sheer ridiculousness of it. So maybe after listening to you guys, I'll try it again. As always, wonderful episode, and keep doing what you're doing. Bye. Well, thanks, Olivia. And I uh, really appreciate the comments and uh, listening. Again, we're not trying to discourage anyone from watching the show. Use your own judgment on that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Thanks again, for Olivia. And we also heard from Grace with an idea of what we should do next. Here's what she had to say. I would really love it if the next episodes y'all did were the animated series. Anyway, keep up the good work. I absolutely love listening to your podcast when driving to work. It makes me laugh. And you guys just have the best friendship. And it's just been so fun. And I'm so sad that it's coming close to an end. So I hope you do continue. Thank you for just making my commute so much better. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Bye. Really appreciate the comment. We have talked about doing the animated series and just as we've talked about doing the movies and that. So we'll be making the decision here within 12 or so episodes <laughs> that are left in the season. So. We're going to have to. <laughs> yeah. But thanks for uh, encouraging us to continue on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Grace, for the phone call. We also received several comments on YouTube. David says this about Plato's stepchildren. The comment, the first Cosby moment in TV history had me doing a spit take. Thanks for one of the very <laughs> few podcasts that gives us some genuine laughs. Keep up the great work and I'll raise a dram to you, lads, you mother flowers. <laughs> nice. I like it. He sounds like that. He might yeah. be Scottish, Dana. Is that a Scottish kind of thing? Yeah, a dram is uh, what you have of scotch. You have a wee dram of scotch. Dram to you, lads. You mother flowers. I don't know about the mother flower thing, but that okay. sounds more pirate than <laughs> Scottish. Anyway. Yeah. Thank you, David, for that. <laughs> we also heard from Olaf Olafsson again. <laughs> Sweet. Sorry. I'm glad he didn't get mad at me, Dana, for laughing at his name like several episodes ago. Um, actually, it's a great name. <laughs> kind of like Dana Danafson or Daniel Danielofson. I, I don't know if I know those <laughs> words, but his is better for sure. Anyway, uh, he commented on two episodes regarding Plato's stepchildren, Olaf said, great podcast, terrible episode, distress call, tell Uhura to call Verizon and get the number changed. <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. The highlight is Parman Jania, because he is really cheesy, giving Kirk a first class mabinga, should have saved some slaps for the writer. <laughs> That's great. That was great, Olaf. And then he also said, about, he goes on, Dana, uh, for another episode. He says about a wink of an eye, great idea killed by the budget. So much more could have been done than having Kirk depend on little Jim seduce Dila. <laughs> That's a good point. Great podcast. The first Cosby moment on TV was hilarious. Well done. Thanks for the comments, Olaf. We really appreciate them. Yeah, I laughed out loud uh, when I heard that on the uh recording dan you mean the cosby moment thing the cosby moment yeah that was classic can you get sued for that dana uh i can't but you can <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> 
I think you're the person who created the LLC, so I'm thinking it's probably you. Okay, uh, and finally, Dana, <laughs> J.D. Lewis sent us another fun fact. A actually, fun facts this week, Dana. Oh. J.D. says, fun facts. A few telltale clues that the end of the series was near and the budget was running out. One, the matte painting of the Scalosian City was a recycling of the matte painting of Aminiar 7 from A Taste of Armageddon. Wow. Two. This episode's score is a composite score, primarily recycled from the episodes The Cage and The Man Trap. And then three, about the episode Wink of an Eye, the shot of Scotty on the bridge at the very beginning of the episode was recycled footage from The Empath, which we would know if we showed these in production order, Dana, instead of <laughs> broadcast order. And finally, Dana, he throws in a bonus fun fact. Okay. Wow. I know. You ready for this? I feel wealthy tonight with knowledge. I know. It's great. <laughs> it, we are, our cup runneth over or our diaper. At the beginning of season three, James Doohan combed his hair back, but Gene Roddenberry didn't like Doohan's new hairstyle. So out of his own pocket, Roddenberry sent Doohan to celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring to give him a new and hipper hairstyle. I find it both ironic and amusing that Roddenberry would skimp on the effects music and footage, and yet he totally splurges for Doohan's new haircuts. Priorities! Anyway, I can't wait for your future reactions. <laughs> Thanks, JD. Those those are amazing. You you are you really add a lot to this show, JD. So keep those fun facts coming. All right, but Dana, that is everything I have this week. That was awesome. Thanks to everybody that wrote in and uh, called. We really appreciate the communications. So let's keep it up. All right, Dan. Let's move on to season three, episode twelve, the empath. Let's just skip to the end because Dana, <laughs> I'm just going to say right now, this episode. Let's see how can I put it. Sucked. <laughs> I was pretty excited about watching this. Then the show started and my excitement faded. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we should jump in, Dana, because you know what? We take one for the team. The team being our, our loyal listeners, and we we're taking it for the team on this one. Yeah, we're taking it big time. So, Dan, we see the Enterprise circling a rather brown-looking planet. Kirk, McCoy, and Spock beam down. We get the captain's log started at 5121.5, orbiting the second planet and the Manarian star system. The star has long given evidence of entering a nova phase. God, I wish it would have gone nova before the episode started. I kind of wish it would have gone during the show. So, <laughs> <laughs> And six months ago, a research station was established to make close-up studies of the star as it approaches. So you put some people on the planet and go, hey, the star is going to turn Nova. Yeah. And But don't worry, we'll get you off in time. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, who's going to volunteer for that? I know. I mean, we're starting off with a untenable premise, I believe. Yeah, and I mean, if these people are valuable to you, you can send probes out. Or McCoy. You could send McCoy. <laughs> but remember when Mount St. Helens exploded, 1980? Yeah. So there were people who worked for the Forest Service who were out there, right? And they were, I mean, they were not like right on the mountain, but they were close by. They got obliterated. There was the guy, Harry Truman. Remember, not, not the Harry Truman of the presidency, but another guy by the name of Harry Truman. He lived up there on the mountain and he wasn't going to move. And he had all his cats. Remember that yeah, guy? Yeah, yeah. Poor cats. <laughs> 
I mean, it was horrible, really, you know, for the, but for the cats, it was a real catastrophe. So anyways, uh, Kirk goes on, Monera is now entering a critical period, and the Enterprise has been ordered to evacuate the station before the planet becomes uninhabitable. Yet our attempts to contact the station's personnel have been, so far, unsuccessful. Wait, wait, hold on. There was not a distress <laughs> call this week? <laughs> not yet. I keep waiting. So anyways, the uh, landing party goes inside the research station and everything looks old and dusty. Cobwebs are hanging from the walls. There are no signs of the team of researchers. Scotty reports there's an enormous solar flare with high levels of cosmic rays accompanying it. You mother flowers. <laughs> Kirk orders the Enterprise to pull back to a safe distance and he tells Scotty that they will stay there as they'll be protected from the solar flare by the planet's atmosphere. So uh, they find a tape and they play it back. They see two men on the screen. One man is complaining about the station and then a high-pitched noise starts and then one of the men just disappears. There's like a little, looks like somebody vomited really quickly on the screen and then they disappear. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, the other man looks around for his associate, then he disappears as well. As the team tries to discern what happened, the high-pitched sound starts again. Spock, of course, tries to locate it with the tricorder. Then Spock disappears. McCoy is, like, doubled up in pain, and then he disappears. Kirk tries to get out of the station, but the sound knocks him unconscious, and he falls to the floor, and when he's knocked out completely, then he disappears. Yeah, I wanted to disappear at this point. Well, I was still, you know, mildly intrigued at this point. Well, I, I guess in hindsight, I wanted to proactively disappear. <laughs> Is that even possible, Dana? It's a good idea. I mean, if there's time travel, I guess it would be possible. So uh, next thing we see is Kirk, Spock, and McCoy wake up in a large open area. So Spock says they're exactly 121.3 meters beneath the planet's surface. So 360 feet-ish. Wow. I'm impressed, Dan. You just did that off the top of your head, too? Yeah. But here's the weird thing, though. The set was, like, black. Yeah. I mean, there was very little there. Okay, season three, they they don't have any money. But they can't even afford, like, proper lighting at the beginning (laughs) of the episode? The first thing I thought of is that, yeah, they're on a soundstage someplace. Right. And it's just they're out of money. (laughs) Yeah. They should have held a telethon or something at this point. So So, uh, Kirk says, how did we get here? And Spock says, residual energy readings indicate we were beamed here by a matter energy scrambler, similar to our own transporter mechanism. Sure. Spock says he's picked up on a life form reading, but it's not one of their scientists. Humanoid, but definitely not Homo sapien. Dana, do you remember the song Homo sapien by Pete Shelley in like, I don't know, 1980, 81, somewhere in there? I can't say I do, Dan. Yeah. It's worth listening to. Kind of, kind of good 80s type of song. Uh, maybe you can find it and play it for us. So they start off through the dark trying to find their way using the tricorder as, a, as their guide. It's kind of funny because as they walk along, they all of a sudden come to a spot and Kirk's leading them. And he just kind of makes a right turn all of a sudden. It's like, you know, a 90 degree turn. I think they're trying to ditch McCoy at this point. <laughs> I think that's what's happening. So they come upon a small structure with a woman lying on top of it in a pink gown. McCoy goes to her to check her out. 
but Kirk stops him. Because he wants to check her out. Yeah. The woman wakes up and stretches. She sees Kirk approaching. Basically, she mimes fear. Dan, you know how much I love mimes. So Dana, Dana, <laughs> Dana, Dana, Dana. All right, first off, I, I know that we both have issues with mimes. You know? <laughs> and you've talked about your mime story and how that was really traumatic for you. But my God, Dana, when she started doing this whole mime-like thing, I I really, you know, had murderous thoughts, Dana. <laughs> wow. I, I forget about your mime uh, hatred. Oh, just I can't even begin to explain. You know, if you were to ask me, okay, here, here, here's the thing, Dana. If you were to ask me whether I, I would rather watch 20 minutes of a mime performance or 20 minutes of The Sound of Music... I think I would just have to hurl myself off of a cliff. I don't think I could do either one. Can you imagine the sound of music done by mimes? Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a thought. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny, Kirk has his phaser out, and he's pointing it at her, and he says, don't worry, we're not going to hurt you. <laughs> and And meanwhile, Spock and McCoy are standing behind her, and they've got their phasers pointed at her. Yeah, they all had those phasers whipped out, ready to go. <laughs> Spock says that she could not have evolved here, and Kirk leans closer, and he thankfully puts his phaser away. Mm -hmm. She backs away again, and McCoy uses the tricorder and reports that she doesn't have vocal cords. She's mute. How do you think she lost those vocal cords, Dana? He says, uh, he makes it sound like that's how she was born. McCoy says, it's only my observation, but it could be her species. Whatever that is, they're, maybe they're all mute. God, I, <laughs> I wish this whole episode was mute, Dana. <laughs> so then McCoy says, you know, they've been like trying to talk to her and obviously not getting any answers. And McCoy says, well, we can't keep referring to her as she as if she weren't here. You have any idea? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm going to call her Jem. Jem, Doctor? Well, that's better than, hey, you. When he first said that, I thought he was going to call her Jim. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> yeah. That would have been really confusing. <laughs> Kirk asks if she can be telepathic. Fox says, well, this is very pathetic, but it's not the same, so. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it was pathetic. Yeah, and we were getting that. Spock says, there's no sign of that, referring to telepathic. Kirk says she knows why we are here, and he leans close to her again, and two aliens suddenly appear in the background. Uh, they look a little like the Telosians. Yeah. The, the back of their heads are like butts. And the robes were not, not the same, but similar. Silver LeMay again. They, they made a mistake about how much they needed, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the heads were kind of recycled from that first season episode? That's what they looked like to me. I mean, you know, they were kind of bulbous heads, and then they right. had like the butt crack and back yeah these uh aliens are holding something in their hand looks like it might be a weapon kind of looked like a uh bad iron or something yeah or a old television remote it was kind of it was weird and i wanted to remote out of this episode <laughs> so the woman cowers when she sees them kirk goes to introduce himself and the aliens cut him off saying they are aware of his identity and they say they are the Vians. And Kirk says, why were they brought there? And then they raise their weapons and Kirk goes flying backwards. He gets up and pulls his phaser and says, if you know who we are, then you know we come in peace. 
Mm. <laughs> That's why he has the phaser out. Right. Yeah, to prove his point. The uh, Vians point their weapons at the crew and their weapons disappear. Then they use their weapons again and Kirk and the team are trapped inside a force field. One of the Vians says the force field uses their own energy to trap them. So if they're, while they're struggling to get out, it's just making the force field stronger is basically what they're saying. Kind of like quicksand. Good point. So the Vians go to the woman and hold their weapons over her. They seem quite pleased. And one of them says sufficient. And then they walk away. And she's like, obviously she doesn't speak, but the facial expressions and the hand movements and how she just moves in the scene. It's a mime, Dana. <laughs> you know, didn't you get that feeling? Oh, yeah, because her, her movements are very exaggerated and stuff and uh, kind of big. It was bothering me, Dan. So, Did you have some like post-traumatic mime disorder going on while you were watching this? <laughs> because you had a mind make fun of you. Yeah, well, that's what they tend to do to some people. So, So people would need to go back and listen to some earlier episodes. I don't even remember what episode that was. Was that season one? Might've been season one, Dana. Yeah, it might've been. Worth hearing though. Good story. So basically I walked out of a restaurant and a mime followed me and was mimicking my walk. And then I started walking again and he started mimicking me again. And I, I'm surprised that mime survived that situation. I really am. <laughs> so the Vians disappear and the force field disappears as well. The team falls down by the woman. Kirk says there must be another exit in this place. So Spock goes in search of an exit. Kirk is holding his head and he has blood trickling down his forehead. Yeah. And she stares at the cut on his head. She reaches out and touches his forehead. She pulls her hand back and his wound disappears. And then it shows up on her forehead. So Kirk touches the cut on Jem's head. Yeah. Okay. He reaches out with his index finger. Yep. And then when he looks at his hand, the blood is on his middle finger. Dana, they're not even trying in this season. <laughs> I mean, come on. At least it was still the same hand. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We got that going for us, I guess. McCoy states she's an empath. Her nervous system is so sensitive, highly responsive, that she can actually feel our emotional and physical reactions. They become part of her. Oh, no, Dana, that's not good. I mean, Kirk's probably <laughs> thinking, crap, I guess I can't have any of those feelings. Uh, yeah, what he can't control. <laughs> so Spock returns. Spock says, uh, in that direction, my tricorder is now picking up a substantial collection of objects. So they walk over and uh, Kirk takes Jim by the hand. So they come to a collection of computer-like items and girder structures holding up nothing. And then there's glass tubes and Kirk walks forward in this uh, lost in space set and stops. The look on his face is unhappy and uncertain. He calls Spock and McCoy over. So uh, we see the two scientists in the tubes kind of frozen in mid-movement. McCoy walks over to his left and he calls Kirk and Spock and they point to three more tubes all empty. Each tube bears one of their names. I wish they would have gotten in those tubes right then and then we could have <laughs> just been done with this. <laughs> so one of the Vians returns and says, uh, you're right on schedule. He says, some further simple tests are necessary and McCoy says, we just saw an example of your test. And Kirk says, two men are dead and you killed them. The Vian says, no, their own imperfections killed them. Haven't we heard something like that before? Well, Inspector of the Gun, if they if they believed that the bullets were real, they were going to kill them, even though the bullets weren't real, you know. So he asks them uh, 
to follow him as time is short. Kirk walks by and says, your time is short. The sun is going supernova. And Spock walks up behind and does the Vulcan nerve pinch. That's a highlight of the show so far. <laughs> the Vian falls to the floor. Kirk takes the weapon and hands it to Spock. Spock says, there's a passage to the surface this way. So they all walk off, including Jim. We see the Vian like wake up right away. And he gets up from the floor. He walks after them as joined by his Vian friend. It, it, it's almost like he was faking it, right? That, that he knew something was coming. That, at least that's kind of what I got out of it. I was thinking the same thing. So we must be right. Yeah. We, well, yeah, we have to be right. Yeah. <laughs> so the Vian's watch as the landing party walks away. They come out of a cave entrance and Kirk tries to call the Enterprise, but says they must be out of range. Spock says there is a research station six kilometers away. So they take off towards the station. So they get closer to the research station and they see Scotty and two red shirts and they're like waving at him like they're like stupid or something. Yeah, the, the yeah. smile on Scotty's face. <laughs> dumb. <laughs> Yeah, so Kirk looks off to his right and sees the Vians. And he sends Jem on her way, and uh, he goes towards them. So Spock and McCoy aren't paying any attention. No, because they're hoping that he maybe doesn't make it. So as he runs toward them, they use their weapon, and Kirk starts moving slower. And it's like slow motion as he starts to fall. I don't know why he was falling. The Vians say uh, their will to survive is great. They love life greatly to struggle so. I'm struggling. I am really struggling <laughs> right now, Dana, to keep my composure. The other one says the prime ingredient. So uh, McCoy and Spock see Scotty and the other two red shirts, and then they disappear. They're like, let's get the f off this planet. Thanks. <laughs> Spock says it was a mirage. Just then Jem comes up and, and gets their attention. Oh, that's Jem, not Jim. Jem, <laughs> yeah. And uh, she gets them to follow her. We see Kirk still moving in slow motion. He's closer <laughs> to the Vians, and they just watch as he falls to his back. And Jem comes around a big boulder and sees Kirk. McCoy and Spock rush to him. The Vians appear again. They say, one specimen will be enough. Kirk asks, what about the others? And the Vians say they have no interest in them and they may go. Kirk says, okay, I'll stay. McCoy and Spock argue, but Kirk orders them to leave. Where they argue, they argue about like which one's going first, right? Because <laughs> like, I don't give a crap if this guy stays. In fact, we want him to, but I want out of here before you. Yeah, they're like, no, Jim, let me stay. And oh, you know, and then Kirk just says, that's an order. And so they, they like, oh, okay, see ya. <laughs> and uh, so they take Jim with them and then they all disappear. And Kirk flips out. And he's like, what happened to my men? You said one specimen. The Vians say, don't worry, be happy. And, uh, <laughs> he says, they're safe. And the other one says, indeed. So uh, on the bridge of the Enterprise, Scotty is watching the solar disturbance. Sulu reports with the solar flares, they'll have to wait 17 hours before they can try to achieve orbit again. And Sulu asks, do you think the landing party is okay? And Scotty says, I hope not. <laughs> if I knew Captain Kirk, <laughs> no, no, what the hell I was doing there. Scotty <laughs> says, if I know Captain Kirk, he's fine. And he's probably more worried about us than we are about him. But McCoy, he's probably burnt to a crisp <laughs> because he's a dumb shit and goes out in the sun. He's out there looking at the sun without any sunglasses on. <laughs> and Spock's telling him, you dumb shit, 
get back inside the cave. <laughs> God. Wow. Dana, poor McCoy this year. You know, we have just given him nonstop crap. You know that? Well, he's not bad in this episode. And, you know, but it's uh, just some of the previous episodes. He was not himself. And Right. So we go back to the planet. Kirk is shirtless. Completely shirtless. Yeah. Hanging by his wrists. Yep. We see nipples and pectorals and everything. And underarm here, too, Dana. Did you notice that? The aliens are torturing him, and Jem is standing by the vines like a witness to it all, whatever. Doing kind of a mime. Oh, I'm so sad that he's getting tortured. God, I wish they would have been torturing her. Just put her up on that <laughs> freaking thing. Dana, I'm sorry. I don't, you know, the mime thing, Dana, it just gets me. Yeah, I, I, I get you. <laughs> I mean, I don't want them to torture anybody, okay? Well, I just want to well, make that clear. But if you are going to torture someone, torture a freaking mime. I mean, <laughs> you know, can you imagine a mime up there, like in the total mime outfit, the costume, you know, the black oh and white God. stripe thing. And the, just... and the white face and the whole. <laughs> <laughs> it's just pretending like it's getting, I don't know, whipped or zapped or whatever. And <laughs> Yeah. So Kirk says, you don't need any knowledge from us yet. You're willing to kill for it. Is that what happened to Link and Ozaba? The Vians say, we did not kill them. Their own fears killed them. They already said that, like earlier in the episode. Yeah, they, you know, they do a lot of repeating. They're not used to conversation with people. You know, the only person they got around is a mute. Sure. And a mime. And a bad mime. <laughs> Can you imagine if you were like, you and a mime were stuck on a planet together? No. And like, you just couldn't kill the mime. I mean, if you could just kill the mime, it's not a problem, right? You just kill the mime. I mean, that takes care of the problem. <laughs> Do you think we have any listeners who are mimes? Not anymore. I mean, we could ask them to call, but we wouldn't hear anything. <laughs> Tell them to send a videotape, yeah. <laughs> no, don't. I don't want to see it. Oh, God. Okay, look, Dana, this is a good, this is a good idea you just had. <laughs> mimes, if you're out there, send us a video. We will send you a Damn It Jim Polo shirt. Or we'll pretend to send you one. You can pretend to put it on, you know. Either way, send us a video of you miming. That would be great. So the, the Vians go on. We've already observed the intensity of your passions and gauged your capacity to love others. Now we want to you to reveal to us your courage and strength of will. Huh? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I wish they would have been miming at this point. <laughs> Kirk says, why? What is it you hope to prove? Is my death to have any meaning? At least tell me what I'm dying for. And the Vians say, if you live, you will have your answer. And they start torturing him again. These guys are just assholes. Yes, they are. So meanwhile, McCoy and Spock are searching for the way out that they had found before. They walk away from the platform when Kirk and Jem appear in the room. A force field keeps McCoy and Spock from going to Kirk. Jem goes to Kirk and then pulls away. And Kirk looks weary and beaten down. McCoy calls after her and says, don't be afraid to help him. What were you two doing before you got here? <laughs> he looks more tired than I've ever seen him. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, she can't answer, you know, except to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just miming something for Dana. <laughs> <laughs> and what I meant was they were jogging. They were jogging. They were running yeah. away. That's why they got tired. So uh, Jem turns around and goes back to Kirk. She reaches out to him and caresses his face very lightly. His what? His 
face. His face, okay. Yeah, I was going to say his head, but I knew you would take the wrong turn on that. (laughs) (laughs) Am I that obvious, Dana? Oh, no, Dan, not at all. (laughs) Then she holds his face for a moment, and he seems to recover some. Hmm. Then we see the marks on his wrist where he was chained up. She touches his hand, and the marks slowly fade and show up on her. She looks in pain. Then she falls very slowly. (laughs) like a mime would yeah to the floor and then the force field disappears spock and mccoy run to the two of them and kirk tells mccoy to check jim mccoy scans her and says she's all right and then kirk is lying down and looks exhausted kirk asks mccoy to explain what happened oh that's a bad that that was a bad idea (laughs) basically mccoy says uh she's an empath again you know (laughs) but it goes on for a while yeah, yeah. And he says, you know, she virtually sustained your body's physiological reactions. Dana, what what is happening in this episode? <laughs> I just don't get it. It's like, how much can we talk through this and how much stupid stuff can we throw out at the audience? That's <laughs> exactly right. I tell you, I would rather, Dana, and I, this is going to be hard for you to believe, I would rather have listened to Kirk try to talk a freaking computer to death and watch <laughs> the facial expressions of Kirk and Jem, like both back and forth. They show him, they show her, they show him, they show her. Oh my God, Dana. Yeah. And her, and her look was just always the same. It's just sad. Yeah. Sad. Uh, nothing's worse than a sad mime. <laughs> <laughs> Except a dead mime, but a dead mime would actually be better than a sad yeah, mime. Yeah. I was going to say, well, that's not a bad thing to so. <laughs> Now, just just to make it clear, we are not advocating the harming of any mimes anywhere. True. We want to be able to do it ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're an LLC. We cannot get in trouble for any of this. (laughs) (laughs) And Kirk tries to remember what happened. He says, uh, they wanted something from me. Kirk asks, what's wrong with me? And McCoy says, you have all the symptoms of the bends. <laughs> I I actually rewound this when he said that. I was like, I must have heard that wrong. <laughs> Wait, are, 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 all of a sudden, are we on like voyage to the bottom of the sea? I mean, what is going on? Well, it's funny because even McCoy says, nitrogen bubbles in your blood cause the pain. Now, how would one get the bends down here? <laughs> He meant to uh, get the bend over. That's what it is. I, I was bending over, about to vomit. I mean, this <laughs> thing was so bad. So Spock says, Captain, I've noticed a light preceded you at the moment you were returned here. Hmm. And Spock says, it's an energy transfer source from that handheld weapon. And he goes on to say, if I can tap into the frequency, I can make the device function for us. Oh, because they've got one. Yeah. They took one from the guy that they did the nerve pinch on. Oh, right. Yeah, that guy. So Kirk tells them to proceed as the Vians suddenly show up again. These guys just pop in whenever they want. <laughs> they do. And the one guy's got a little bit more of a wrinkly chin. He says, you are the captain. You are responsible for the lives of your crew. So he says, when we resume our interrogations, you will decide which of your men we shall use. Well, can you just use both of them? Just take them both. Take them both. Send me back up to the ship with Jem. Well, uh, let me show her around a little bit. I'll make her talk. <laughs> yeah. 
They say uh, there's an 87% chance that the doctor will die. And while Commander Spock's life is not in danger, the possibility is 93% that he will suffer brain damage from watching this episode. (laughs) (laughs) And Kirk says, wait, only an 87% chance he'll die? (laughs) Well, I'll take that 13% any day. (laughs) (laughs) Take him now. So later we see Spock working on the handheld weapon. He says he's beginning to understand the principles of how the device works. McCoy says the Vines will be coming back soon. Kirk tells McCoy to take it easy. McCoy says, Men weren't intended to live this far underground. It's just not natural. As space travel is. Some men spend the majority of their lives in mines beneath the surface. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. Ka-ching! <laughs> <laughs> We'll talk about this near the end of the episode, Dana, but I'm feeling pretty good right now. (laughs) Yeah, your carrots is going to be ordered. (laughs) Oh, so Spock tells McCoy he's recorded all the principles he's discovered on the tricorder. If anything happens to him, McCoy and Kirk should be able to figure out how to complete the adjustment. McCoy says, I'm not a mechanic. I thought he was going to say it twice. I was so excited. McCoy argues that Spock should be the one to leave with the captain. Kirk walks up and says he'll make the decision if and when the time comes. And again, Jim is watching it all, very interested. It's like she's got her own TV with these three guys. <laughs> Kirk looks ill, and so he lies down. McCoy grabs a hypo and goes to Kirk, and he gives him an injection in his back. So Kirk lies down, basically passes out. Yeah. Spock says, you've just made the situation clearer, Doctor. With the captain asleep, I am in command. So when the Vians come back, I will go with them. McCoy looks defeated. He walks away and Jem stands and looks like she's going to go to McCoy. Then she turns and walks back to Spock. Kind of in a very mimey looking walk. <laughs> God. <laughs> so it would have been great if she was acting like she was going against the wind, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And he goes to give her like the, you know, the, the, the nerve pinch and she kind of blow, gets blown back and then she kind of goes toward him again. He tries to get the nerve pinch and she goes back again. Oh my God. Then he pretends he's got a rope around her waist and he's pulling her. <laughs> so we go back to McCoy and he's preparing another hypo and you can just guess what he's going to do with that. He walks up and injects Spock and Spock stands suddenly he's shocked and he's trying to fight the effects of the hypo. And he yeah. says, this is very unethical. And then Spock passes out. McCoy looks at Jem and says, you stay here with my friends. They'll take care of you, mm-hmm. even though they're both knocked out. <laughs> <laughs> the Vians return and McCoy looks at Jem and she looks sad like she has for 90% of the show. God damn it. <laughs> and we see a tear streaking down her cheek. Oh my God. <laughs> I was starting to cry at this point. Literally <laughs> tears were coming out of my eyes at this point. Next, we see McCoy hanging by his wrists but he's not shirtless. Yeah, what's the deal with that? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, you know, in his contract said, you know, no nudity on my part. So the Vians say, please understand if there's any other way to accomplish our purpose. McCoy says, get on with it. They torture him and he jumps in pain. So we go back to Kirk and Spock and Kirk is asking why Spock let McCoy go. And Spock says, much like you, I was convinced by the doctor's hypo. You dumbass. Don't just like accuse me of letting him go. What were you doing? Sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) Spock looks at the device and goes into a long explanation of how it works. Essentially, it's controlled by the mental impulses of the one who holds it. (laughs) 
Kirk says, can you make it work for us? And Spock goes into another long explanation that basically <laughs> means yes. <laughs> Kirk cuts him off and says, get it done. Then they ask the question, why did the Vians let them keep the weapon? The Vians had to realize we could learn how to use it and escape. And Kirk says, yes, but leave McCoy here. Yeah, leave McCoy there. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> And then they get, like, you know, a call from Scott, and he's like, I've been listening to the whole thing. Leave him. Leave him. <laughs> Your mother flowers. <laughs> Mr. Spock, I'll beam you up first. <laughs> <laughs> then the transporter won't work, and we'll have a hard time. <laughs> Just then, Spock says he has the device working, but it might only work once. <laughs> Spock's like, let's just go back. Let's just leave McCoy here. Kirk says, or take us to McCoy. And Spock says, uh, or maybe the Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> and Jim's nodding. Yeah. And pointing up. Like, yeah. All of a sudden she can speak the Enterprise. The end of death. Let's go <laughs> to the Enterprise. Yeah. Jim grabs all of McCoy's gear and shows it to Kirk. And Kirk says, the best defense is a strong offense. And I intend to start offending right now. Offense. That's how he actually said it. A couple of things. One, maybe that's how Canadians say it, right? Because he's Canadian. Yeah. And two, I was offended by this entire freaking episode. <laughs> so the next thing you see is they appear in the lab, but they don't see any vines. They see McCoy hanging by his wrists. He looks beaten. He looks quite honestly dead. His eyes are just kind of glazed over. Yeah, thankfully. Kirk is saying, ah, he's never going to show up on the bridge again when we don't want him. <laughs> his shirt is in tatters they get him down and kirk carries him to a bed spock scans mccoy and says severe heart damage signs of congestion in both lungs spock pulls kirk aside and says he's dying jim wait is that your uh, medical analysis there or <laughs> or you just want us to move on yeah <laughs> and mccoy says He's right, Jim. Damn, he can still talk. Can't you do something about those vocal cords? So Kirk asks, how long? We see Spock staring down at McCoy, and Spock says, it could happen any time. And McCoy says, the correct medical phrase, eh, Spock? Wait, what, what was the correct medical phrase? I, I, didn't get, I, I didn't get it when I heard it in the show, and I don't get it now. I'm sure the phrase, it could happen any time, is the correct medical phrase. I mean, you never say that outside of a you know child being born or somebody dying. Uh, when can that light turn green? Could happen any time. <laughs> when do I got to take a crap? Could happen any time. I mean, there's a, you could say that almost every day if you wanted to. Yeah, okay. Well, I was trying. Point is taken. Thank you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Jem sits on the floor and turns away, and she looks even more sad now, which I didn't think was even possible. <laughs> no. Kirk pulls Spock aside and asks if Jim can do anything for McCoy. So they walk toward Jim and a force field appears around them. The Vians appear and say no interference is allowed. They say Jim cannot be forced to help. She must decide on her own. And Kirk asks, what purpose can this serve? They say they have one need in life. And that is the completion of this test. Really, the test is, Dana, how long are we going to make it before we turn this episode off? That's the test. <laughs> I made it all the way through. We failed. We both failed because we both made it all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> and Spock asks, what purpose can be served by the death of our friend except for to bring you pleasure? Says, surely beings as advanced as yourselves know that the, your star system will soon be extinct. Your son will Nova. And the Vians are like, yeah, we know. <laughs> and uh, 
And Spock says, then you also know that millions of inhabitants of the planet's planets are doomed. And they say, that is why we are here. All the planets of Manara system, we have the power to transport the inhabitants of only one to safety. One of the Fians says, if Jem's planet is the one that will be saved, we must make certain beyond any doubt whatsoever they are worthy of survival. But then where are people from the other planets that they're testing? You know, why aren't they testing a person from every one of the planets? Well, they're basically playing God, Dan. You know, they're making life and death decisions here. No, I get that. But if the idea is we got to test her to see if her planet's worthy, did they test the people from the other planets to see if their planets were worthy? Yeah, they tested the shithead planets and they weren't. (laughs) (laughs) So Jim walks over to McCoy and she sits on the bed by him. And Dan, she looks sad. (laughs) No, really sad? (laughs) Wow. Do you think when they when they did like the call for, you know, the casting for this part, it was just like one female actor be sad. And that was it. (laughs) No speaking lines. It's be sad and act like a mime. Now, here's the deal, though, that I have a question for you, actually, Dana. She has no speaking lines in this show. Yep. And it seems like when you are an actor, you kind of get paid by the number of speaking lines. They might be doing it by screen time. Now, would this be quality screen time? No, that would happen in a completely different episode. <laughs> so, <laughs> In an alternate universe. Yeah. <laughs> so Kirk says, how will the death of our friend serve this purpose? And the Vian says, his death will not serve it, but her willingness to give her life for him will. The Vians explain that each of you is willing to give his life for the others. We must now find out whether that instinct has been transmitted to Jim. Everything that is truest and best in all species of beings has been revealed by you. Those are the qualities that make a civilization worthy to survive. So, but I mean, Jem's right there. She's hearing all I know, this. She <laughs> Jem goes and sits by McCoy again. She touches his hands. The Vians say, watch and behold. I guess they had to tell us to watch because at this point yeah. I was like, I'm not watching anymore. <laughs> yeah. just, I stopped. They say that's significant that uh, she's helping him. Then an inst- then they say an instinct new to the essence of her being is generating. Compassion for another is becoming part of her functioning life system. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help myself. This is so freaking stupid. Jim holds her hands over uh, McCoy's face and the bruises get transferred to her. Then a moment later, they vanish from her. She looks worn out and starts to cry. Oh, wait, she's crying again? Yeah. She falls away and the Vians say, she is afraid. She doesn't have the instinct to save her people. She's saving herself. I, 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 it still doesn't make any sense. Like this one person is responsible for their whole planet. For yeah. the yeah, it it doesn't. And they and they pick the mute. I mean, at least they could have picked someone who could talk. <laughs> Well, they, that could be the whole planet. Maybe nobody on the planet can talk. That'd be a nice, peaceful place to go to, yeah. So now Jem is, like, rolling on the floor, looking even sadder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? She deserved an Emmy, really, for this, for, for being so good at that sad thing. Deserved an enema. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> Spock says, Captain, Dr. McCoy's life is not solely dependent on Jem. The Vians, too, must be capable of saving his life. And one of the Vians says, true. (laughs) 
Kirk says, then you cannot let him die. And the other Vian says, his death is not important. We must wait to see whether her instinct for self-sacrifice has become stronger than her instinct for self-preservation. How many different ways are they going to say this? This is like the third or fourth time, right? Yeah. So McCoy starts to wake and he coughs and Jem reaches out to him again, very dramatically, very slowly. It's like her hand actually like comes up over the edge of the bed. Yeah. And it's just like reaching for him. He kind of grabs her hand and goes, no, over here. This is, you need to reach over here. This is what needs saving. (laughs) (laughs) So McCoy says, don't touch me. Stay away. Says, Jim, Spock, are you there? Don't let her touch me. She'll die, Jim. I can't destroy life. Even if it's to save my own life. I can't. You know that. I can't let her do it. In the force field, Kirk is struggling trying to break free. Oh, they're back in a force field. I forgot. See, I've already forgotten that part, Dana, and I just watched this episode today. (laughs) Spock says, emotion fuels the force field. We must suppress our emotions and by doing that, weaken the force field. Spock slowly reaches into the force field and then his side of the force field disappears and he goes and disarms the Vians. Spock says, Jim has passed your test. She was willing to sacrifice herself to save another. Still, the Vians say no, her instinct must be fully developed. Kirk and Spock realize that she must die to pass the test. Kirk says, if death is all you understand, here are four lives for you. And Kirk returns the two weapons to the Vians. But shoot those two first. (laughs) Says, we will not leave our friend. You've lost the capacity to feel the emotions you brought Jem here to experience. Oh, here he goes. Oh, God. You don't understand what it is to live. Love and compassion are dead in you. You're nothing but intellect. And now the Vians look kind of sad. And they stand staring at Kirk for a long time. And I mean a long time. Finally, one goes over to McCoy and heals him. Then this uh, Vian picks up the unconscious gem. They say farewell and they move away. And then they kind of like, I don't even know how to describe it, but their image becomes smaller and smaller, like they're being pulled away. And then they just disappear. I'm so confused, Dana. I'm so confused at this point. I'm exhausted trying to make sense of this show. So, uh... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what happened to her and and the the planet and all the people? Later on the Enterprise, Kirk is looking thoughtful and Spock asks, what is puzzling you? Well, what's puzzling me is like how this episode got written and (laughs) produced. I don't get it. Kirk says, I'm not puzzled, Mr. Spock. I'm awed. And McCoy says, I'm with you, Captain. She awed me. And Kirk says, no, I wasn't thinking of Jem. I was thinking of that fantastic element of chance out in limitless space. We should come together with Jem. And Kirk tells Sulu Warp Factor 2. And Sulu says, aye, aye, sir, Warp Factor 2. And Dan... That's how the show ends. Dana, you have something to tell us about the writer of this episode. Yeah, Dan, this episode was written by Joyce Muscat. This is her only known TV script. Thankfully. (laughs) Unsolicited scripts are somewhat rare in television and movie industry. Does that mean, Dana, she just like mailed one in? Yeah. uh, They said that they were receiving uh, like hundreds of script ideas. And this is the one they chose. Yeah. I read that there was only four or five unsolicited scripts used by Star Trek. However, 
I wanted to throw this in. There was a person who worked briefly for the company I worked for way back in the 90s, Narendra Shankar. He was a PhD physicist from Kent State. He wrote a story that they used in Next Generation. And because of his background, they hired him as a staff writer. Really? Yeah. And now he's working on shows like The Expanse and For All Mankind. Wow. Did you have anything to add about uh, the writer, Dan? You know, I tried to find the writer because I would have liked to have interviewed her and asked her, what the f*** were you thinking? (laughs) But I can't find anything about her. I don't know if she's still alive. I mean, here's the deal. Maybe the script was a really good script, Dana. And by the time it got through, like, Gene Roddenberry and the other producers, they really effed it up, you know, which that would not surprise me, especially in season three. So I don't want to say that the script is horrible in its initial kind of concept, but the episode itself was not good. But I did see that a couple of the other unsolicited scripts, they were some good episodes, like The Trouble of Tribbles. Yeah. That was an unsolicited script, right? The Tholian Web, yeah, another really good episode. But still, this one, Dana, I just don't know how it like made it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think the, the producers were kind of wowed by the idea of, one, a very scaled back set. <laughs> You know, and, and hopefully saving some costs. And uh, and two, the idea of the empath. I think that that kind of grabbed their attention. And hey, you know, she got a script that she wrote. It got produced. Yeah. She got her name in the credits. I mean, good for her. Yep. You know, really good for her. Well, Dana, how about some information about some of the actors in the show? This week, I have something about Catherine Hayes. She's the one that played Jem. Oh, okay. She was born in Princeton, Illinois, and actually grew up in Joliet, Illinois. Really? Well, there are a lot of mutes there, too, interestingly (laughs) enough. Not far from where either one of us grew up. So uh, she worked on a lot of the usual TV shows that we mention all the time, Bonanza, Man from Uncle, Here Comes the Brides, and uh, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. You know, how how did she get so many roles if she couldn't speak? (laughs) See, Dan, that's how good of an actress she was. She could actually speak, but she convinced you she could not. Wow. Wow, Dana. (laughs) Okay, my mind has changed about this episode. (laughs) Well, makes one of us. Uh, she, <laughs> she might be best known for her work on the uh, daytime soap opera As the World Turns. She appeared on there from 1972 to 2010. Wow. And she died at age 87 in 2022. Do you know what her last words were, Dana? <laughs> <laughs> she was a mute. She couldn't speak. <laughs> she didn't have any last words. <laughs> wow. Wait, she wasn't a mute. She was not really a mute, yeah. Okay, all right, good. So, Dan, do you have any themes or dilemmas? Yeah, how did this freaking episode get made? (laughs) And who wrote this piece of crap? Well, we answer that part, but (laughs) we've asked this question about a few other episodes, right? I I still don't know how this one got made, Dana, really. That's my dilemma. How about for you? (laughs) What was a dilemma in this episode? Well, I was uh, wondering, are we more capable of empathy than we realize. Damn, you had a good one. You really had a good one. Yeah, and is it in our nature to be empathetic? No, I'm not about this episode. So, Dan, let's move on to the uh, good and the worst of this episode. Why don't you start us off with what you thought was good in this episode? There is a good part. You owe me some Garrett's popcorn. Yeah. And I think the bet was I get to choose the size. (laughs) Nope, that, that was not part of the bet. 
How about a best part for you, Dana? Uh, no distress calls this week. You know, after four or five <laughs> weeks, I thought that we'd never get out of that cycle. So I was very happy to see that. Do you have any other best parts for this show, Dan? I thought DeForest Kelly having some good moments. He even said this was his favorite episode. I don't know what he was smoking when he answered that question. How about for you, another best part? Uh, well, McCoy's I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. Literally said yes when that happened so uh and then you realize you got to pay me some garrett's popcorn yep and so i went no and then uh, <laughs> said maybe dan will gloss over this like he does so many episodes that he won't hear it so. <laughs> maybe he will, he will have fallen asleep or just turn it off dana how about another best part for you the willingness of spock kirk and mccoy to surrender themselves for each other how about a worst part dan do you have any yeah i mean i'd say this episode maybe it might even actually make mimes look good i mean this could be a good thing if you're a mime and a horrible thing for those of us who hate mimes yeah how about for you worst part the uh, lack of scenery i know some people are gonna say oh you know it's because they were just like in a void or whatever and that these guys the uh, viands created for him but it just looked like lost in space to me dana hopefully Something happened on this day in history besides this episode. What was it? <laughs> Dan, this show aired on December 6th, 1968. The number one song in the U.S. was Love Child by Diana Ross and the Supremes. Two weeks now. And the number one song in the U.K. was Lily the Pink by Scaffold. Well, speaking of music, the uh, Rolling Stones released the album Beggar's Banquet, which contained the classic song Sympathy for the Devil. It's also the last album, I believe, that uh, Brian Jones played on. So I jump over to December 7th, Dan. Uh, NASA launched the second orbiting astronomical observatory, nicknamed Stargazer, into orbit from Cape Kennedy. So in this for you, Dan, in one of the worst peacetime disasters for the United States Coast Guard, 17 crewmen of the U.S. CGC White Alder were killed when the buoy tending ship was sheared in half by a Taiwanese freighter, Helena. <laughs> So, Dana, the counts for this week, uh, they're kind of exciting. How about the dead crewman count? Zero. We are still at 48.5. Okay, that one's not so exciting. The shirtless Kirk Ripshirt Kirk count. We got one, and we are now at 20. Can we count it as two since we saw both nipples, or does that not, <laughs> does that not count? The nipple count was never included in our count, so. Okay. Dana, how about the he's dead count? Nothing this week. We are still at 22 there. All right, Dana. I know you're going to be excited about this one. I'm a doctor, not a fill in the blank. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. So that bumps us up to nine, Dan. Wow. And just to reiterate, uh, there was a bet involved here, <laughs> right? Yeah, I get to, I'll send you a piece of uh, caramel popcorn. There's got to be at least two, right? There's got to be a caramel and a cheese. See if we've got some laying around here from three years ago. <laughs> Look in the couch cushions, you know. <laughs> yeah, I found some. I found some. We don't have to buy them anything. How about the supreme being count, Dana? Here we have these butt-headed people that uh, can do whatever they want. I was so close to thinking they were kind of supreme, but they proved themselves not so. So after that long explanation, it sounds like I'm Kirk trying to talk a computer to death. <laughs> We're at 12. Dana, how about the violation of the prime directive count? Uh, nothing this week, though. They should have just blown up the planet when they saw it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. So we are still at 12. 
All right. How about taking over the Enterprise? Uh, Scotty wanted to, I think, but uh, thought better about it. So we are still at 15. How about who's commanding the Enterprise? Other than Kirk, the only person we saw commanding was Scotty. So that puts us at 43, our biggest count. Dana, before we go, you have something to tell us about one of your favorite foods in the world, and it's Pop-Tarts, right? Yeah, Dan, we've got uh, sad news a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, William Post was the guy who was credited with uh, inventing Pop-Tarts. He passed away in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the age of 96. The Michigan man helped create the first toaster pastry for the former Heckman Biscuit Company, which later became Keebler. Pop-Tarts originally were called a fruit scone, came about when a group of Kellogg executives visited the plant that he managed looking for ideas for a new snack. That's probably as far from a fruit scone as you can actually get, Dana. (laughs) And they had like a piece of pie, shape of a slice of bread, fork marks around the edge, and two pieces of dough with filling in it. He said that they made them there at the factory, and they said, we have this idea. We'd like to put that in a toaster. He took the piece of pie with him and said he had to break every rule in the book to create Pop-Tarts. What what book was that, and what were those rules? That's what I really want to know. <laughs> well, Dan, the original test run of 45,000 cases of each flavor, strawberry, blueberry, brown sugar, cinnamon, and apple currant, first sold in Cleveland and blew off the shelves. Wow. Oh, man, just hearing about brown sugar, cinnamon, like I, I want... Want one right now? Well, you could sneak out and see if you can uh, tell you know tell your wife, "Hey, I got to go get cigarettes." <laughs> so to make it easier to ship, Post thought of freezing them, despite concerns they would melt in the toaster when heated. They obviously didn't. In the following few years, frosting and sprinkles were added, and Kellogg created Milton the toaster to be its mascot. I do not remember that mascot. I do. He was annoying as hell. Could have been on this past episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Kellanova, which uh, recently split off from Kellogg, makes 7 million Pop-Tarts a day. What? That generates nearly $1 billion in yearly sales for the company. Well, you know, they said that they made 7 million Pop-Tarts a day. That's $2.5 billion Pop-Tarts a year. Wow. Who's eating all those Pop-Tarts? Well, who besides you is eating all those Pop-Tarts, Dana? <laughs> Well, Dana, I'm just going to be really blunt about this episode, okay? It sucked. It was horrible. (laughs) I have a headache from watching it. It was fun, though, to talk about. You weren't angry at all? I was angry during part of it. Did you get angry at all? Uh, I mimed anger, but... Like you mime throwing stuff at the television. Yeah, yeah. You're like, oh, crap, that really was a rock. I I didn't mind that. (laughs) Dan, what are we going to be talking about next week? Dana, next week we have Alon of Troyes. Hopefully it's going to be better than this week, Dana. Dan, it's always great to get together with you and talk about Star Trek. And I especially want to thank all of our new friends who have reached out to us, whether through Facebook, email, or by phone. We really appreciate the comments, and we can't thank you enough for all the support. Until we meet again, live long and prosper. Thanks once again for listening to Dammit Jim, the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at dammitjimpodcast at gmail.com or join the discussion on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or X. You can also call the Damage Gym Hotline at 509 676 6298. 
Enjoy the rest of your week. And as always, remember to live long and prosper. This has been a Ramble Jar production.